welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. I need to begin with the exact opposite of what you expect a guest speaker to begin with. Um, Not funny banter and getting you to like me a little bit, but actually something a a bit awkward. Um, And that is, I need to start with confession. So I want to confess to you that as a friend, I rarely listen. That I sit in rooms where my friends talk and I spend most of the time scheming in my mind how to steer the conversation back to myself and put me at the center That as a dad, I really struggle with patience. And in fact, recently there was a moment where I was on the street with my son and I was just about to lose my temper at him when a member of my church rounded the corner and I immediately was able to turn on the pastor's smile and completely fake it in conversation with him. I walked away from it genuinely frightened of what's in me that I was able to do that so easily. As a husband, um, one week ago, I got in an argument with my wife where I raised my voice to her in in a way that was so inappropriate, and I was completely in the wrong. And if there was footage that we could just play back of that argument to you right now, no one in here would think that I'm worth listening to at all. And as a pastor, uh, when you get invited to preach at another church, you really want to do a great job. You want your friends that invited you to be glad that they did, maybe even to consider inviting you back. You want to, everyone that you know is suddenly going to have an opinion on you a half hour or so from now, you want it to be a positive opinion. And so even as I stand in front of you right now, I've got this whole conundrum of motives swirling around inside me, and you have to know that about me. Now I could keep going, but um, Darren is beginning to fear that I'm having a very public nervous breakdown. (laughs) And that's not actually it. The reason that I have to start with honest confession is because before anything else, you need to have firmly in your mind who I actually am, not who I want you to think I I am. And that's because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so if it's God that we've gathered for, it is our insufficiency that we should be bragging about. And what you have to know about me is that I really want you to think that I'm winsome but also deep and can kind of just bring all this together in an effortless way, and that, I'm afraid, is just not the case. So the greatest threat to what God wants to do in here today in your life and in mine is my ego. The one way I know to deflate that and make room for God is with confession. So with that out of the way, we can now turn our attention to what Jesus has to say about prayer. So I'd love to pray over this passage, and then we'll begin looking at it together. Heavenly Father, um, we acknowledge your presence in this room. We remember now that your Holy Spirit longs to whisper words of life into each of our ear, that in some way you are holding the whole cosmos together, and yet you're also personal enough to speak to us on an individual level. There's not a soul in here that needs anything that I have to say, and yet all of us are so thirsty for what you have to say, and you have determined to work through human beings. And so we just invite you into this place. We ask that you would speak to us, and we make room for you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with three true stories. First one. Last fall, I was sitting in a church meeting with my wife on a Wednesday night, and she got a call from her father, and so she stepped outside to take the call. And her dad said, the doctor's just left the room. 
he's not going to make it. And he had planned to say quite a bit more than that, but that's all that he could get out before getting choked up. And the backstory is that Kirsten's brother, Van, had been rushed to the hospital with chest pain that he thought was heartburn just a few days before. So he had gone to a walk-in clinic thinking he needed an antacid, and then they had rushed him to the hospital in an ambulance because it turned out that his aorta, the primary valve pumping blood from your heart to the rest of your body, had such a significant tear in it that he was gushing blood internally. Just a couple of days later, a man in his early 30s was told, you're not going to make it. There's nothing we can do for you. So we left that church meeting right away and we got on a flight to Nashville where he lives. And by the time we landed in Nashville, we had more information. One of the leading heart surgeons at one of the top five heart hospitals in all of the country was saying, look, we're gonna do this surgery. There's one surgery we can do it. Statistically, it has a much higher chance of killing him than saving him, but he's dying anyway. And this is the last ditch effort. So that's what we're going to do. And so I sat there in this hospital room and I prayed. My head in my hands, sitting at the foot of my brother's bed, pray like all the desperation and hope that we're coming together in this thing we call prayer. Three days after that morning, Van woke up in a hospital room after a successful surgery. That same surgeon that said he wasn't going to make it came into the room and with tears streaming down his face told us about the moment in the surgery five hours in when he declared Van deceased and then a nursing student who was in the room telling whose only job was to hand scissors to the surgeon, began to pray for his life. In that moment, he found the tear that he could not find for the previous five hours, sewed it up, Van survived, and he's recovering today. Miraculous. That's not my word. That's what, that is what the non-Christian, non-praying surgeon called it. That's not bad, man. What else have you got? Second story. There's a woman named Monica, who's a single mom with one son. She was a devout believer, used to sing hymns and pray prayers over her infant son each night as he fell asleep. He grew up to see the world quite differently than her. He became known in their city for public drunkenness and as a womanizer. Eventually, he used all of his intellect to become a professor of philosophy, combating the faith of his mother, but Monica didn't give up. She just kept on praying for her son's salvation. When he was 19 years old, she had a dream that she believed was God promising her that he was hearing her prayers and would respond to them for her son. And so she intensified in her prayer. And then a year passed, and another year passed, and another year passed with no change. Nine years after she began praying, her son was sitting alone in a garden one day, had a desire to open up the scriptures that he despised, came into relationship with Jesus alone by himself in a garden. His name is St. Augustine, the most famous father in church history, arguably the greatest theologian of all time. Many know his story. Far fewer know the story of his mother. One more. Um, Yongsong Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea, started a morning prayer meeting uh, 20 years ago with 40 people. Today, if you attended that prayer meeting in one of the world's global cities, there are more than 12,000 people gathering Monday through Friday in the morning to pray. They've had to split it into three prayer meetings, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and 6 a.m. They lock the doors of the church on the hour every hour because it's standing room only in every prayer meeting. If you show up at 4.01 a.m., you get locked out and have to stand outside in this thing called the cold, dark winter mornings that none of you know anything about just to wait to get in to pray. 
You see, prayer is a compelling wonder. God acting on earth in response to a conversation with a human being. How could there be a God that powerful and also that personal? We don't dare to believe it most of the time. Walter Wink says this of prayer, the message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. And yet, prayer is also a confounding mystery because half the room is motivated by those three stories I shared and the other half is confused or maybe even angered by them because you're already beginning to replay your own personal versions of those same stories and they don't have such a neat, tidy ending. They don't have a bow you can tie on the top of them and then use them to open a sermon. Like, hey man, that's great that God healed your brother, but why some and not others? Like, what about all the people that prayed the same sort of prayer you prayed and don't have the story you have? If we insist on celebrating divine healing, then can someone please explain divine silence? Or, I'm really happy for Augustine and his mom, I really am. But why wait that long to answer a prayer that you're going to answer anyway? Like, is there some kind of right combination of time spent praying plus method of prayer plus number of people praying that actually gets God's attention? Or is he just apathetic and lazy most of the time and she finally asked the question at the right moment? And in what other context does withholding that kind of power for nine years and then giving it make sense? And that's awesome and inspiring, I guess, that the Koreans get up so early in the morning to pray, but are there any metrics you can give me to show me that anything's happening because of it? Like, are there any actual statistics that show that anything more is going on there than just the benefits of early morning meditation and good old-fashioned camaraderie? See, the question that we're all circling around most of the time, if we're honest, is do my prayers actually matter? Like, is anything going to happen in the world because I prayed that wouldn't have otherwise? Or is anything not going to happen that was bound to happen except for the fact that I prayed? Do my prayers matter? The novelist Kurt Vonnegut offers this opinion on that question. I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? He's got a point there. And so I think for just as many of us as would say yes with Kurt Vonnegut, at least that many of us would just, or I'm sorry, yes with Walter Wink, at least that many of us would shrug our shoulders with Kurt Vonnegut. And so here is the space that our prayers actually live, paralyzed between wonder and mystery. History belongs to the intercessors. Yes, that is my God. And then I begin to pray. And all the inspiration that I felt when someone read a quote like that suddenly gets swallowed, swallowed up by confusion and doubt and pain and past disappointment. Now, don't get me wrong. We all continue to pray in this paralyzing space between wonder and mystery, but we don't pray in response to Jesus. Instead, we pray the safest kind of prayers. We pray those prayers so vague that, that we're not really sure if we could ever measure or know if God is answering them or not. Statistically, this week, according to Gallup research, more Americans will pray than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nine out of ten Americans pray regularly. Three out of four say that they pray every day. We keep praying, but I'm not sure that we pray in response to Jesus. And so just as a thought experiment, let me just ask you, consider everything you've prayed for in the last week. 
If God answered every last one of your prayers, what would happen? Save one or two particularly bold or naive people. The answer is usually very little. And that's because the space between wonder and mystery paralyzes us. So Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us to pray, and he started praying. And his prayer sounded like this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Oh, beautiful. One God and Father over all of these different people groups. I love that. Hallowed be your name. Touch resistant on that one. Because hallow means to praise and it makes God seem like a bit of a narcissist. Like why do I have to butter him up before I come with the stuff I've actually come to talk about? But whatever. If he's that powerful and that personal, I can get there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he loses us. You know, because prayer as a a form of meditation, absolutely. Prayer as a centering exercise, it's essential. Prayer is a way to be reformed from the inside out. Yes, prayer that actually works. Like the sort of prayer that joins God in bringing about redemption and pushing back the darkness. The sort of prayer that actually makes a visible, tangible difference in the actual people and the actual issues that they face that I see all the time. The sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth in the words of Jesus and our opinions start splintering in all sorts of different directions. This is where he loses us. And he did everything he could to make sure he didn't lose us here. Jesus kept saying stuff like this. Let me quickly just give you a survey of quotes from Jesus as it relates to prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's pretty straightforward. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He keeps going on like this. If you have unbelievable eyesight you can track with me on the screen if you remain in me and my words remain and you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer if you then though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him so if we really took the invitation of jesus seriously when it comes to prayer we'd have the same problem as that korean church but we don't because we don't buy it Not entirely, anyway. And so it's true that prayer is both a wonder and a mystery. But more than anything else, prayer is a profound invitation. Prayer is, I believe, the most profound invitation that we're offered on the other side of grace. And it's not for the pious or for the lucky. It's for all of us. And the on earth as it is in heaven kind of praying that we're talking about is technically called intercessory prayer. Now, biblically, this word intercede, it means to go between, to pass between two parties, to mediate. But just put into layman's terms, intercessory prayer means to pray for someone else. And we're not talking about like making wishes to a cosmic genie to get God to do what he wants. We're talking about love for someone else that goes beyond our power to fill, and so we go to God in prayer. This is my favorite definition of intercessory prayer. It comes from Richard Foster. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. 
So to see the invitation to regain movement from the paralyzed place that so many of us have gotten stuck, we're gonna have to go all the way back to the very beginning. And I wanna give you God's original plan when it comes to prayer. So we're about to go through the entire story of the Bible in about seven minutes through four major episodes, creation, fall, promise, Jesus. The story of the Bible as it relates to prayer. I'm going to move fast. I'm going to need you to track with me. I am beginning to fear that I'm losing you. (laughs) Hang in there, okay? First, creation, the life God intended. All the way back in Genesis 1, uh, at the very beginning, God created Adam. Now, what you need to know is that this Hebrew word Adam literally translates as person or human. And in fact, many times when you are reading the English translation of what we would call the Hebrew Old Testament, where we read man and woman, or man or woman, the Hebrew just says Adam, spelled exactly like the English name Adam. So if your name is Adam, your parents were extremely literal. But more importantly, what you need to know is that the claim at the heart of Genesis is, is, this isn't just the story of God and one guy named Adam. This is the story of God and all of us. This is every individual story. Do you know why you were created? Genesis chapter one says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, and then it goes on to list everything created on the first five days. So why were you created? Well, the biblical claim is that you were created to rule. But this isn't a manipulative, power-hungry sort of rule. This is an imago day, an image of God sort of authority. You and I were created, we were set apart to rule creation by selfless love, intercessors, participating with God and overseeing the world. And so God made Adam and Eve his managers, distributing his authority here on the earth. They were intercessors trusted to call the shots. Now you need to hear me say this. God did not give the earth to people. But God did actually share the management of the earth with people. This is why Psalm 115 says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. Because God created you and I with a world to manage. We were his intercessors or his managers trusted to redistribute the resources of his kingdom on the earth. Now what you should be asking if if you're still paying attention is, well then where on earth did it go so horribly wrong? This brings us to episode two, fall, the life we actually live. Because, I mean, if God's plan is for you and I to steward and rule creation by selfless love, we're honestly doing a pretty subpar job. Scientists are currently putting end dates on when the earth can support human life. Natural resources are getting pillaged from the nations that need the most and overconsumed by those who have plenty. Half the world's dying of malnutrition while the other half dies of obesity. Where did God's intention for creation go so horribly wrong? Well, the scriptures make the claim that all of this dysfunction is just the product of one great deception, that you and I lost who we are. We forgot the role we were created to fill managing his creation. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They believe that deception. They act on that deception, and then pain and suffering enter the world. And with that, the line of communication between God and human beings was cut off. So the conflict that, is introduced, that introduces chaos into the Genesis story goes like this. You have a spiritual enemy. The weapon of that spiritual enemy is deception. The product of that weapon is paralyzation. 
The authority to rule creation given to you and I in Genesis 1 was taken by Satan in Genesis 3. The intercessor role that God created you and I for was lost to a spiritual enemy through deception, leaving us paralyzed. Now, this is all quite technical, so this might help. It's a bit like this. Uh, A friend of mine got into a motorbike accident a few years ago that left him with a brain injury. And so he lived for several months in a rehab facility in upstate New York. And that's because the part of his brain that was connected to his motor skills had been damaged. So he would sit there and, and have thoughts like, move your right hand. And yet his right hand would not move. The signals got cut off somewhere between his mind and his hands, and and there was a communication breach between his head and his body. Now, he still had all the intellectual capacity of a young professional living in Manhattan, but he had to be fed ice chips by a nurse to learn to chew again because somewhere there was a break between his mind and his body. And I will never forget what it felt like to sit there looking at him the first time I visited him. He, he was looking at me with just terror built up behind his eyes because he could think and feel all the power was still within him, but somehow it was disconnected from his actual movement. My friend Ricky was trapped inside a body that didn't work. He could see and think and want, but his action was paralyzed. And so I sat there with tears inside my eyes, wishing that I could free him, but this was a lock that I couldn't pick because the imprisonment was inside of him. And what I felt looking at Ricky is is something of what God feels looking at us. Because we are trapped due to a communication breach. God created us with an inseparable connection between his mind and our action. We are called his body here on the earth. But we look around the world now and, and we see the dysfunction surrounding us everywhere and we lack the capacity to set the world right because somewhere between God's mind and our action, there's been a communication breach. The signals are still firing, but the action has been cut off. There's an imprisonment inside us. We still carry the perfect image of a loving God around us in the creation we were made to manage, and yet we lack the ability to carry out the management as we were designed. Episode 3, Promise, a guaranteed victory. Now, all this brings us to Genesis 3, verse 15. What? Genesis 3? How long do we have? Does this guy know the Super Bowl is today? (laughs) Yes. I promise I'm going to move much faster from here. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to Satan says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, the head is biblical imagery for manager or intercessor. God's very first promise, spoken immediately after our authority was lost, goes like this. Through human offspring, I will send one who will recover the intended role that you have lost. God's very first promise is, I'll make you intercessors again. Episode four, Jesus, the living victory. So then the prophet Isaiah spoke after Jesus' birth. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. God is coming to the earth. The author is writing himself into the story. For to us, a child is born. That is a showstopper on Christmas Eve by candlelight. But it's much more than just that. The government will be on his shoulders. That's Genesis language. He's coming to win back the authority you lost to repair the communication breach that you're forced to live within to pick the lock that's inside of you. That's the first promise. 
And then in John 12, Jesus shows up and he says this, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's significant, and here's why. Why were you created? To rule. And what does Jesus call Satan? Ruler of this world. That's Genesis language. And what does Jesus promise? The ruler of this world will be cast out. He's going to win your rule back. That's the Genesis promise. Then at the very close of the Gospels, after his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus sums up the whole thing like this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I've won your authority back. I've recovered the position for which I created you and had been lost. I've stepped into the tension you feel all the time and cut away through it. I've made you an intercessor again. You see, all of this is about the restoration of prayer. If you're still tracking with me, you at this point should be thinking, oh, that's wonderful, man, but what does any of that have to do with prayer? I'm so glad that you've asked. Jesus is gonna clear that up for us in the most confusing thing he ever said. This is John chapter 16. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, it's not you, it's me. It's better if I just go. It's the, it's the classic breakup speech. But it's actually the furthest thing from it because he's talking about prayer. In the very same breath, he goes on to say, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. He's saying, you've gotten used to bringing your requests, your needs, your questions and complaints all directly to me in person, but I'm making a way for you to go straight to the father. I'm cutting out the middleman. And he's talking about prayer. Prayer is the pathway that gets us back to God's original plan. Prayer is the way that we can rule, manage, and intercede in this world again. Prayer is the repair of the communication breach that ripped through the world at the fall. Philip Yancey, commenting on this very passage, says this, Of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is. Unless... Jesus was right in that most baffling claim. He went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into direct communion with God and to give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. God has shared his power with you. He calls you a manager of heaven walking around on the earth. And here's how that moves from a biblical idea to your actual experience, prayer. See, Jesus is telling his 12 closest followers, until now, you've never really prayed. Not like I designed it, you have never prayed in my name. A better translation of the phrase, in my name, is under my authority. So to pray in Jesus' name means to pray with the authority that he recovered for us, the authority we were always created to carry lost, and he's won back on our behalf. In Jesus' name was never meant to just be a tagline at the end of the prayers of experienced Christians. It's actually the exercise of Jesus' victory. It means that we have the same access to God the Father that Jesus has. This is the theologian Larry Hurtado. To pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus standing with God. So you're not Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, every time you pray, you stand before the Father in the very standing and status of Jesus. 
in the eyes of heaven, you stand exactly as Jesus stands. See, what I'm trying to get you to see is that when God won your authority back, God was winning prayer back. It's why Karl Barth says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of this world. And so prayer is the way we push back the curse that has infected the world and infected us. John Wimber says prayer is meeting the needs of others by God's resources. And so prayer is heaven's highest security clearance. To pray is to enter into the heavenly vault, collect all you can in your arms, and then go out redistributing into the world. To intercede is to say, oh God, you've missed a spot over here. And my gosh, you've missed so much over here. This is what is actually happening when we pray. It's distributing God's resources all over Long Beach, among your coworkers, your roommates, your neighbors, and your friends over bars and cafes and soup kitchens to over young professionals and stay-at-home parents and students and the unemployed and high-rises and housing projects and homeless shelters and prisons. Bringing heaven to earth restores the world to how it was created to be and gives you back the role that you were always created to carry. That is prayer. But, but, the worst kept secret in church history is that most of us don't really like prayer. I mean, even most Christians don't really like prayer. I mean, we still do it out of guilt or obligation because we know, or maybe because we know that it's good for us. Prayer at best is the spiritual equivalent to eating celery. <laughs> but what if, according to Jesus, you've never really prayed? Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. You've never come wearing the royal robes with the weight of a crown on your head as an heir to the highest throne of the kingdom that outlasts all the others. You've never come to plunder the riches of heaven because I've given you the combination to the vault. You've never come to implement the victory that I've already won. I'm just looking for some people to implement the consequences of the victory that I've won. Wait, that's prayer? I could actually wake up a few minutes earlier for that. I could spend my lunch hour differently. I could even see myself skipping a meal or two for that. But here's the part that really blows my mind, is that God doesn't need intercessors managing his creation. You know, God's not overwhelmed by all the responsibility of running the world he started. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely outside of time. He's got this. It's that God chooses intercessors. That's how committed he is to sharing redemption with the likes of you and me, that except in the most extraordinary cases, God has limited himself and his mission on the earth to the management of imperfect, flawed, ordinary people just like us. I wonder what God is longing to do in this city, and he's just waiting on you, a manager of his household, to ask him. So consider the last week. If God gave you everything you've prayed for, what would happen? I'm not asking you that to accuse you or to make you defensive. The only reason I'm asking is because you're a ruler in his household. You're an heir to his throne. What are you doing with all that authority? We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth 
God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. So I want to close with this. Living in New York City, whenever I get to know someone outside of the church and they find out that I'm a pastor, the, re- the reaction's usually like this. A pastor? People still do that. Huh. And then if, if I get to know them a, a bit longer... Usually the question resurfaces with everything they were actually thinking when they found out that I was a pastor. It goes something like this. So why did you actually decide to become a pastor? Like, do you just come from a long line of people that couldn't let go of a religious ideal? Do you have like some super conservative, strange upbringing? What happened to you? And the honest answer to that question is prayer. Because when I was 13 years old, I was not sure I was buying all of this Jesus stuff. I mean, I was a curious kid, but I was not an easy sell. So, like, if God is real, then I'll take everything he's got to offer. But if he's not, I'd prefer to find out sooner than later. So I don't waste so much of my life uh, singing these mediocre songs. And then a mentor of mine asked me a question that messed me up in the best possible way. It was just about to hit summer break. I was in the seventh grade. And he said, Tyler, what do you think God would do if every day this summer you prayed a circle around your middle school for every kid in your grade by name? And I was like, I don't know, man. (laughs) And he said, why don't you find that out? And I really liked that experiment. And so every day that summer, all summer long, a 13-year-old kid walked around the school building with a, a school directory in hand praying for everyone in his coming 8th grade class by name. I want to show you a photo of the building just so you know how painfully ordinary this was. There she is, baby, Brentwood Middle School. <laughs> Remarkably similar to where we are right now, actually. Now, this dingy public middle school is the very foundation of who I am. This is the place where God shaped me more profoundly than anywhere else because something started changing in me while I was walking around that building praying through my school directory. So that when I came back to school in the eighth grade, I started a Christian outreach ministry at my public middle school meeting at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Pick a convenient time. That's a great start. What middle school kid doesn't want to consider the meaning of life before the sun rises, right? (laughs) Then this was my entire strategy for running these meetings. On Tuesday nights, I would open the Bible to a random place. I would pick a paragraph, and I would write down what I thought it meant, and I would explain it to anyone who showed up the following morning. (laughs) Does that sound like a recipe for revival or what, you know? But I prayed. I went to school early on Wednesday mornings to lead those meetings, and so I would go early on Tuesday and Thursday mornings to pray for what God might do. This is a true story. My mom had to ask me to chill out with all the prayer because she was losing too much sleep taking me to school early in the morning. That actually happened. A couple months in, there were so many students coming to those meetings that we had to move out of the math classroom we started in into the theater of the school. That year, a third of my eighth grade class came into relationship with Jesus in the darkness of the early morning before school started through the potentially heretical sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. (laughs) We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. 
I don't have any family that live in that town anymore. But my in-laws live about a half hour away. And I happened to be at their house for the holidays uh, this year, and I thought, you know, I would really like to drive to that middle school that I haven't laid eyes on in 20 years and just pray a circle around it at 6.30 one morning for old time's sake. So I did. I drove back to that school, and I pulled up to the intersection where I could, I, I stopped a red light, and I could see that school that I hadn't seen in 20 years. And I just started weeping in the car because I was laying eyes on holy ground. And I parked the car and I got out of the school and I walked, if we could just go to the next slide, to this little spot here where I used to sit on Tuesday mornings with that director with my back against that concrete wall. And I remembered all that God did in that place. If we go to the next slide, I sat here on this unbelievably ordinary piece of concrete right in front of the school where I invited people to join me. And for months, no one did. And then by the end of the year, my entire close friend group had come to faith and was surrounding me there in prayer for our other friends Thursday mornings at 6.30. I walked that same path that I beat into the grass that summer and over the course of that year. So to you, that is an old school that needs renovation. To me, that's holy ground. Because that's the place God started in me, something that has never and will never stop. It's the place where I learned what Jesus was talking about when he said, pray in my name. And so I walked that very familiar path, praying through tears of joy and a trembling voice speaking to the Father who I knew deeply. And I just knew that one visit wasn't going to be enough. So I went back. It was New Year's Eve. I was out to dinner with my wife. Um, we had wrapped up dinner. We had dessert. And I was like, you know, babe, you know what would be a really romantic way to ring in the New Year is to go to the middle school you didn't attend so I could pray there. And so we did. It is awesome to be married to me, as you can see. Um, so we hustled to this dingy public middle school because I wanted to be praying a circle around it when the clock turned over to a new year. And I really think some of you need to hear this, so I just want to pause the story for a second to, to make this point really clearly. I went back, not because I thought if I did, then God would start doing what I wanted him to do, and not because there's magic in lining God up with some spot on our calendar. It's because that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with the Father, and that night, I did not become any more his son. That night, God didn't love me than he has any other night of my life. And that night, God did not love me more than he did anyone who was out dancing and toasting champagne. That night, I did not become any more his son. But in a world that for the most part rejects him, ignores him, and chooses basically any option over him, imagine how much it must bless the heart of the father for one of his children just to say, over all of the other options, I choose you, father. So don't talk to me about outcomes, man. Like, if you're going to talk about prayer, do not start with outcomes because prayer is about presence before it's about anything else. Before it's about anything else, prayer is about presence with the Father who in an unfathomable mystery is jealous for you. The only thing he wants is your full presence, your time, and your attention. And so it's a disservice for us to talk about prayer and to lead with outcomes. We cannot brush past presence with the Father because that is the, that's the very beginning of what Jesus won back for us. Prayer is about presence before it's about anything else. Back to the story. 
So there I am, I'm, I'm walking this familiar route around my school. And it started something in my life that's never stopped. To this day, I pray from 5 to 6.30 on my roof in Brooklyn every morning. That's how I start every day. And it's not because I'm like gritting my teeth like, come on, God, I'm doing my part. No, you, it's because it's the joy of my life. It's the joy of my life to be with the Father. But this night in particular, as the clock was turning over to a new year, and I'm praying in this place that means so much to my own spiritual history, this place where I've seen God do so much, I'm walking around with tears streaming down my face again, just my voice quivering, and I could just get out one prayer. And I prayed it again and again and again walking around that night. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. What I saw you do here in this ordinary place through ordinary people, do it again, Lord. This time in Brooklyn. This time in Long Beach. What I witnessed you pour out here 20 years ago, pour it out this year in a double portion, this time in Long Beach. Do it again, Lord. You haven't changed, and I'm still asking. Do it again, Lord. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. If we really took Jesus seriously on his invitation to prayer, what would happen in you? What would happen in this church? What would happen in this city? Why don't you find that out? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.